I hope you've turned kind of from Thanksgiving into Christmas because a lot of stuff changes, correct? All right, everything kind of changes when you sort of shift into this part of the season. You got uh, the music changes almost. I mean, we started off with one today, but those will be ramping up little by little. If most of your radio stations, they start to slip that Christmas music. If they slipped it in before December 1st, stop listening to that. But after December 1st, it's legal, it's good. They start doing that. Um, we drink different stuff, correct? I mean, uh, I was with a guy this week and he ordered eggnog at a restaurant. I was like, that never, ever happens except in December, okay? And then uh, one of the things we do is we start an Advent time. Advent is the time where we, uh, where we start looking ahead to the incarnation, to the celebration of Jesus, as well as his ministry. Uh, for us, we celebrate then at our, at our Christmas services, and here's what I want you to understand. At Christmas services, listen to me, there's going to be 18 of them Sunday and Tuesday of the 22nd and the 24th. Well, hear me on this, just so you don't go, you didn't tell them. They're all identical, okay? They're all the same, all right? So wherever it is, you're bringing a guest, and I hope you will. Hopefully you got uh, one of those little, uh, what are those little mini invites right here? They're in your seat. Don't discount how, you're like, that's kind of an insignificant little something in my seat. Listen, every single, every single Christmas, every single Christmas, somebody will come up or I'll hear the stories like, you know what? I've never been to church before. One of your church members, you know, I'm a barista at Starbucks or I'm a this over here and they kind of, they just invited me and they just gave this, all right? So we got a billion of these. Take as many as you need. They're more in the lobby. The only unpardonable sin is having some of these left over Christmas morning, all right? All right? Santa will not visit you if you have these left over Christmas morning. That means you hoarded them and saved them. So give those away. But again, Christmas is cool and we're going to celebrate uh, as we could. I want to show you one thing. My wife sent this to me this week, and she sent this. This is a stamp, all right? It's a pretty easy stamp, but you know you're a preacher's wife if you look at a Christmas stamp like this, and you go, does this look like Mary's on the keyboard and Joseph's singing vocals? That's when you, that's when you know you got a, a preacher's wife right there. It's like, you know, it kind of does. It kind of does. It's ruined that Christmas stamp forever. But here's the idea is when we look at this, we're kind of taking our, we're going through uh, the Christmas story in a bunch of different ways to, to get there. Luke chapter one is where we're going to be. And we're going to look at a lady today. We're actually going to, she's really just what it revolves around. And it's one that Protestant churches in particular don't spend a lot of time on. Her name is Mary. And the reason that, and we're a Protestant church, and the reason Protestant churches don't oftentimes spend any time with Mary is actually goes back a couple of months and then it goes back about 500 years, all right? Because on October 31st, uh, there was a celebration. I mean, you thought it was Halloween, but it was really the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, all right? Protestant Reformation, like, what is this that you speak of? Here's basically a quick history of the Protestant Reformation, all right? Uh, 500 plus years ago, there was a very disgruntled, unhappy, uh, angry uh, Catholic monk whose name was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was trying everything he could, everything he could to earn the favor of God, to have God like him, to have God accept him. And so he was going to all these links. And the more he did, the more guilt and shame he felt about what he didn't do. And finally, one day, Martin Luther's reading his Bible and he's reading in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, he's, he comes across, I think it's in Romans 5, where he comes across, he's like, listen, it's by, it's by grace through faith. It's by grace through faith. And it's like, what? This is amazing. I've, I can't believe it's by grace that God accepts me by the finished work of Christ, not by all this stuff I'm trying to earn. And it just changed everything for him. And so what that translated into is that he took and 
there was a lot of frustration with the way the church had gone and selling indulgences uh, to try to raise money and all this stuff. And so he took what's called the 95 Theses. There was 95 protests, if you will, about the way the church had gotten. And he nailed those to a church in Germany saying, you know what, we protest this. We, and from that, uh, from that, the Protestant, most people say that's where the Protestant Reformation kind of sprang from. And we've got, from that came what they call the five solas, all right, soul is the idea of alone, and it's a grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And so part of that, what happened, though, in that whole awesome, awesome deal was, is that the Protestants saw the veneration, all veneration means is respect, but they saw the respect for Mary uh, go way beyond that and go to, in many ways, the worship of Mary, the idolatry of Mary, praying to Mary. And so they resisted that. And, but, I, but the problem is, in some ways, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? So now uh, what you have is nobody even wants to talk about Mary in the Protestant churches because they're like, well, it's been abused, it's been abused. But here's what, here's what I found and here's what I hope you find today. In looking at her, you may find that you have way more in common with her than you think. And as I'm going to go through this story, kind of today, I feel like a tour guide. I'm a tour guide because as I worked on this message this week, I was like, man, what, what about this and what about this? And, and that's what a tour guide does. A tour guide like takes you somewhere, like points out things and here's something you need to take note of and here's the background and here's the history. And so part of it, there's a tour guide because there's so many different things and I'm just going to point out a couple to you. And then the last part, we're going to just, we're going to do some work on the front end. The last part, we're going to look at, what does this look like for me? But let me say it again. If it, you have more in common with Mary than you think. If you have family issues, all right, you're going to be able to relate today. If you struggle sometime with what God's agenda is for your life and it's not the agenda you had for your life and it's like, man, that's a curveball. I'm not where I thought I would be when I looked back 10 years ago. It's changed. It's different. God's put different stuff in my life. If sometime you find it hard to actually believe what he's telling you and the promises that he's giving you, then guess what? Then you will have a lot in common with Mary, all right? So when it's hard to believe uh, this is what we do. Go ahead, Luke chapter one. Let's kind of work through some verses and then we'll, uh, then we'll kind of look where we are. In the sixth month, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent. By the way, the sixth month was basically related to the previous story about, it's really the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But anyway, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed, we'll come back and look at this word in a second, it's important for the story. To a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. All right, let me just kind of take a time out and do two things. First of all, Nazareth, if you went there today, some of you have been to the Holy Land, it's a pretty substantial city. There's about 75,000 people or so that live in Nazareth now, all right? Back then, that was not the case, all right? Nazareth was that little bitty town. They say that somewhere between 100 and 200 families lived there. So we're talking about a small town. It's that town that you pass trying to get to Myrtle Beach that you can't even remember the name of it, but you got a corn dog there and you got some diesel guys there. That's all you remember. That is Nazareth back then. And it says there's a, and, and again, being a small town, there's a good chance that Mary and Joseph probably grew up together. They knew each other and now they've become what the Bible calls betrothed. Now betrothed is not exactly married, but it's much bigger than engagement. Think of betrothal as this. It's part one of a two-part ceremony in the Jewish faith of marriage. Here's basically the flyby of what betrothal is. Betrothal is when you it's very serious. You intend to get married, but what happens is you get betrothed, but you don't get actually officially married for a year. 
during that year, you are considered married, but you can't consummate the marriage if you get my drift, okay? So for one year, you are married, but you can't sleep with each other for a year after that. And part of the reason is the marriages were arranged and they wanted to make sure, hey, this girl is pure and give time for the groom to actually pay the bride's family. Some of you with a bunch of daughters are like, why don't we do that now where they pay me instead of me putting the wedding on? But the groom would actually pay a dowry or pay a bunch of money to the bride's family and it would give them time to, to, uh, to get that all together. And so all that being the background, uh, both Mary and Joseph, they're probably teenagers so kind of get out of your mind that picture of, you know, Mother Mary with the, you know, halo and the 35-year-old matronly look with the gown sitting on that. That's not her, okay? That's not her. Uh, you can tell just culturally they uh, would have been very poor. You can tell that because they, they got to use the cheapest offering in the next chapter. More than likely culturally they would have been teenagers. So Mary might have been like a you know, like a ninth grader and, and Joseph might have been like a 10th grader. So we're talking poor, more than likely they were illiterate. Most of the people were illiterate back then, particularly the women in that day and time. They didn't get a chance to read and write and know that stuff. And so when we're looking at this, picture that in that. She's probably though got some dreams for her life. Man, I just can't wait till my, can't wait till my wedding day. I'm planning that. And Joseph's working hard. He's a carpenter. He's saving up, doing all that stuff. I say all that to say this, is we could stop right here and spend the rest of the time on nothing but the fulfilled prophecy in the Christmas story. 322 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing about the coming Messiah, everything from his name to his lineage to where he was born, all that stuff gets fulfilled in Jesus. 322. It's like an infinitesimal chance that all that could be fulfilled in one person. I heard it a long time ago say the chances of all those prophecies being fulfilled, all 322 being fulfilled in Jesus, that's the same chance as if you go into the state of Texas and you fill the state of Texas up four feet high with silver dollars. You take one silver dollar, you paint it red, you throw it in the middle of the state of Texas, four feet high with silver dollars. You take a guy, you blindfold him, you spin him around, you put him right in the middle of the state, and he picks out the one red silver dollar. It says that is the probability that all that stuff comes together in one person. And yet we, uh, we look at it and it's coming together. But let me, let me kind of go on with the story. That's one of the quick little tour guides. He came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to, and a couple of these are very important, greatly troubled and tried to discern. Discern is the idea of logic. I'm trying to think this out. The Christian faith is not some blind faith. We're like, I'm just gonna put my mind in neutral and never think about this stuff. This is an unusual event. And she's like, I'm very troubled at what he said, and I'm trying to discern what sort of greeting that this actually might be. And then verse 30 says this, the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So a couple of words you might want to underline your Bible. Greatly troubled. It means agitated. It means our day and time would say she's freaking out. Now, most people would say she's freaking out because an angel visited her. Now, that could be true, and you see some other places in the Bible where that's the case. All right, angels in that day, they're not like Teletubbies, all right? There wasn't some little flowery guy walking around with little wings, and it's like, man, I used to beat you up in high school. That's not an angel. Every place in the Bible, an angel shows up, people freak out. But the indication here is maybe just look like a man. Maybe just look like a man. Maybe just look like the 
guy you see asking for food. You know, the Bible actually says if when you show gospel hospitality, you might be actually entertaining angels without you even being aware. So the indication is she's not freaking out so much about the angel as she's freaking out about the greeting, about what he said. And what he said was, you found grace, you found favor. Like who me? I'm a teenage unwed girl in the middle of nowhere who nobody knows me and yet God is actually showing up talking to me. But I want to show you this is uh, verse, uh, verse 31 says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And this is super important. Both here and in Matthew 1, he says, I'm going to name, I'm going to name my son. In that day and time, the son would be named by the parents. It was a huge deal. And he says, you will name him Jesus. Now, Jesus is actually, in the Old Testament, that same word would have been termed Joshua, okay? Joshua, some of you Bible scholars know the Joshua of the Old Testament. The Joshua of the Old Testament, he's the one that took God's people and then brought them into the promised land, took them over the Jordan, brought them into the promised land. Jesus is the greater Joshua. He's the greater Joshua. He takes God's people, dies for them, they repent and believe, and he brings them into the promised land, brings them into heaven, takes them not across the Jordan, but he takes them from death to life. That's what Jesus means. So we talk about, you'll call him Jesus. It has a big picture. It's about what he did. Your name probably doesn't mean much. I'm not trying to, not trying to really like put a pin in your bubble today, but we do a bunch of baby dedications and they're awesome. They really are. They really are awesome. And grandparents are really sitting down here and they're taking pictures. And what they do is they give me a card that has the baby's name and it has what the baby's, what, what that etymology is. What, is the, what does the word mean? Okay, it's like, okay, and it's great. Sometimes you get some good ones. Sometimes it's easy. It's like you type it in. It's like, this means gracious. This means blessed. This means, you know, whatever. Okay, I thought, man, because sometimes the names, we got to look hard, all right? You got to look hard and they don't mean much. So we got to figure out a way, go to the fourth language to figure it out. So I'm like, well, I'm going to look up my name because I'm hoping my name means something. I'm hoping my name means something. I hope my parents thought about what they would name me, all right? And so I looked them up and Bruce like, that's got to mean something significant. It's got to have really big symbology. You know what Bruce means? From a brushwood thicket. That's what that means. What is, from a brushwood thicket. I was like, well, I was like, okay, I'll go to the middle name. Most of y'all don't know my middle name. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't usually say it because it's Pittman. That's my middle name, Pittman. Thank you for not laughing, by the way. The first service laughed when I said Pittman. I'm scarred. But they, it's Pittman. And I thought Pittman's got to be some kind of epic name because it's such a weird name. It's got to be epic. You know what it means? From the pit. That's what it means. Like from the pit. Can't you get something better than that? But then uh, Frank. Frank's got to be something. Frank's got to be something. And I tried. I looked and I looked. And it, it finally meant something. It means open-hearted and it means generous. And I was like, oh, okay. I feel a little bit better about myself. But here's what I want you to understand. This is Mary, her exposure to the word would have been primarily as an Orthodox Jewish teenager through the synagogue, somebody standing up and reading. And could this have been the first time where Mary is starting to think, you know what? This baby he's telling me about, could it be what the Old Testament's talking about? Maybe in her mind, Isaiah 53 starts coming to mind. Isaiah 53, when it's talking about the suffering servant, it says, you know what? And God laid the iniquity of us all on him. A few verses later, it says, and it was the will of God to, it was the will of God to crush him. And it might be at that point, it's like, that's talking about my baby, my baby. That's my baby is going to be killed. 
Now listen, some of you all, and I know all across our church, a lot of you parents have actually, you've had the unbelievably painful experience of burying your child. And there's nothing that I get, there's nothing that I see that is so life-changing than that. And it's such a hard, I mean, I mean, Lori's brother and my in-laws, they had to bury their son in a car wreck when he was early 20s. And that, that just devastated them. That was like a marker in their life that I don't know if they ever fully recovered from. And so when he says, you will name him Jesus, the big picture is not just how to name him. It's what he was going to do. He was going to save the people from their sins. But loved ones, it's not just the big picture. This is what he's going to do. It's also the smaller picture about how you were supposed to interact and relate to him. Because normally the parents got to name him. Normally the parents, especially the dad, would say, hey, this is my boy, I'm gonna name him this or that. He's like, you're not, I'm naming him. And it may be in a small microscopic way, what that's talking about is, listen, when you come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you come on his terms. I mean, I hear people all the time, it's like, you know what, I'm interested in being a Christian, but not if being a Christian means X, Y, or Z. If it means X, Y, or Z, I'm not interested in that. You know what they're trying to do? When you say, I want to be a Christ follower as long as he doesn't get in this area, what you're saying is, I want to be a Christ follower, but I want to name the baby. I want to name him. Maybe that's about your money. Maybe that's about your sexual activity. Maybe that's about your relationship with somebody. Maybe that's about forgiving somebody. When any of you and I ever say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus, but not in this case, what we're saying is, I want to name the baby. And at that point, he's not your Messiah, all right, he's your, he's your advisor. At that point, he's not your savior. At some point, you're looking at him as your life coach. And so what he says is, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And so go to verse 32, and it just gets better. It says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is going to come around about how you and I actually struggle well when you're having a hard time believing. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, now check this out. A lot of times, again, people are like, you Christians don't think. And parents, as you disciple your kids, please do not tell them, don't ask that question, just believe. Don't ask that question, just believe. That is poor discipleship. Sometimes people have a bumper sticker. You know what? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And that is true in a large degree. But if you're not careful what that's telling people, it's wrong to ask questions. Greater minds than anybody in here have asked good questions. God is not going to fall off his throne if they ask a hard question. People have looked, you know, if they ask, what about the veracity of scriptures and what about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and what about these questions? Don't say, I'll just believe, don't look at it. Listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your, your mind. You can ask these questions. If you don't know the answer and somebody asks you, don't guess. Don't say, oh, you just need to believe. The Christian faith is a logical faith in many regards. Is there a faith element? Absolutely. But Mary is responding just the way you and I would is if an angel shows up to you and says, hey, you're going to have a baby and you're a virgin. Because she's saying, you know what, hey, I kind of went to the Nazarene uh, school and they had some, uh, they had sex ed and, you know, I learned that virgins don't have babies. So I'm not saying you can do it. I'm just saying, how's that going to work, all right? And don't, don't misunderstand, this was like a big, big thing for her. This was life altering, not just for having a baby. 
Here's what would happen in that culture if you were an unwed mother. Number one, they actually, the town could shame you and take you out of town, strip your clothes off and shame you. That could happen. That did happen. But at minimum, at minimum, you imagine telling Joseph, I mean, how's that working? Hey, hey, hey Joseph, I got good news, bad news. Good news is I'm pregnant. Bad news is I'm pregnant. Now we see from Matthew 1, Joseph struggled with that as well. This is like his high school sweetheart, and he loves her, and he knows he hadn't been with her. And she shows up, hey, I'm going to have a baby. And he's like, well, I don't want to shame her, so I'm going to just divorce her quietly. And God had to go to Joseph and say, do not do that. Do not do that. I mean, look at the struggle. I mean, Joseph, the struggle. It's like, ah, I knew you were crazy, you know, but you were real pretty. So I put up with the crazy, but now that's too crazy for me to put, you're not that pretty for me to put up with that crazy, all right? So I'm going to divorce you. So there's a lot of costs there. When she got divorced, when Joseph would divorce her, as she would think, especially in that time, there was no social safety net, okay? She's going to end up a beggar on the street, a beggar on the street whose son is called names because he came illegitimately in that culture. And so don't, don't, this is not an easy decision. This is not Mary going, oh, I'm a child. This is, I mean, she is feeling the pressure here. That's why she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's actually the question a lot of y'all are asking about a situation in your life. You're like, my marriage is on its last tiny thread of hope. How will this be? How are you going to renew my marriage? Some of y'all got a prodigal and she hadn't shown up in two years. How is he going to come back? How is she going to come back? Some of you have been looking for a job for nine months and he hadn't found any. It's like, how is God going to provide a job to a 58-year-old? And you're having a hard time trusting God and you're struggling with that. And you're like, you know what? I'm singing the songs, but I am struggling big time with that. And just understand, uh, so is she. Now, by the way, some of you are like super Bible scholars and you're like, well, pastor, how come, how come, uh, how come the angel's like nice to Mary and he's going to give her like a great, awesome promise here in a second, but how come he's nice to Mary and then the previous story, he takes Zachariah who said the kind of the same thing and he put him in timeout, all right? If you don't know the story, here's basically Zachariah. Angel shows up. You're like, well, maybe it was a different angel. Same angel, Gabriel, all right? Wasn't like grumpy angel versus good angel. This is like both angel, all right? And so he says, okay, you're going to have a son. And Zach says, uh, <laughs> it actually is really a bad way to do it. Maybe this is why he got, this is probably why I got put in timeout. He says, basically, because they're really old. They're like octogenarian. And he says, you're going to have a son. <laughs> and he says, basically, how's that going to happen? I'm a, and he says, I'm no spring chicken, and my wife, she's old. That's the way he puts it. He's like, I'm not super young, but my wife, you know, she's like old, old, old. I mean, that may be why God chastised him, but like I'm super old. And so why did God, why did God chastise and put Zach in timeout for virtually the same question that Mary's asking here? It's like, how can that be? Now, you don't maybe get the whole insight into there, but I would say this. Some of it has to do with maybe what Keller calls honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Dishonest doubt is prideful. This could not happen. This whole virgin with child, Messiah, miracle deal, that is foolishness. 
I refuse to. It is an obstinate. I don't care what it says. I don't care what evidence you show me. I do not want to believe. That's dishonest doubt. That's not even doubting. All right. That's just asserting what you say. Which, by the way, let me step over here real quick. When you talk about miracles in the Bible, you do understand those are exceptions, correct? Sometimes people are like, well, I don't believe in miracles. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson went and cut out all the miracles in his Bible, so he ended up having what he called the life and morals of the Jesus of Nazareth, all right? I don't want to believe in the supernatural. Well, you can't edit the Bible. So here's what a miracle is. A miracle is when God steps out of the laws that he has put in place to make his world work, right? If you can get past Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If there is a God and he created the heavens and the earth, then there's going to be times when he can step outside of the normal way of making things work, like here, and say, I've got a purpose for this happening. And I'll tell you what that is in just a second. So you got all this story, Zechariah. Uh, gets put in time out, his appeared to be dishonest. Honest doubt is good. Honest doubt is fine. There's a vein of Christianity that says you should never doubt. You should never, ever, ever doubt. And dishonest doubt can be wrong, but honest doubt can propel you forward. If you're struggling with something right now, and maybe it's like, God, I, I, I believe you can, but how in the world is that gonna take place? There's a story that we're actually going to look at second week of January to kick off the new series that I've been, it's been very important to me. And don't turn there, but I'll, I'll give you an example about maybe dishonest doubt versus honest doubt and what you and I do. In that story, there's a dad and he's got a, he's got a son who is sick and hurting himself. You and I would say that, you know what, he's destructive, he's cutting himself, he's doing all that stuff. And, the, and, and, and Jesus is there and the dad comes up and he says, uh, Jesus, have mercy on my son. And so if, if you can help him, would you help him? And Jesus, and I hadn't figured it out because I hadn't really studied the passage that well yet. I'm just kind of meditating on it. But what he says, he's, he says, Jesus, if you can heal my son, would you do it? And Jesus seems to get perturbed and says, if, if, if I can help your son, bring that boy over here to me brings the boy over, says, you know what, you guys, and he says this, he goes, you are a twisted and a faithless generation. I mean, that's not a real seeker service right there. It's like, you're twisted, you are faithless, bring the boy over here, and then he heals his son immediately. Here's my question to all of us, okay? What is it in your life right now that you would say, it is impossible for this situation to change? Some of you know what it's like because they're coming to your house in about two weeks for Christmas dinner and you're like, it's impossible for this situation to improve. And you're like, what's gonna happen when they get together? It happens ever. it's impossible, okay? You need to be able to say, you know what? I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling whether you can restore our marriage. I'm struggling whether you can redeem my friend. I'm struggling whether you can restore this business. I'm struggling with that. What do I do? Okay, we're gonna get to that in a second, but Honest doubt, honest doubt, there's nothing particularly wrong with honest doubt. Honest doubt is, is what, uh, I think it was the church father Anselm, Anselm, you guys are like, Anselm, who does he play for? He's a church father. He said, all doubt is, is faith that seeks understanding. It's faith, it's like, God, I, I don't know, I don't know. That's what Mary's doing. I believe you can, but how are you gonna do that? I've never seen a baby come from a virgin. How are you gonna, how are you gonna do that? So, and by the way, real quickly, we don't have time for, let me do one quick little tour guide, Steve, over here a second again. Probably in the next few weeks, you're gonna see, you'll be watching the History Channel or CNN or something, and you'll, be, you'll see some expert get on there. And that expert will be probably a reverend or whatever. And 
this reverend will say something to the effect of, you know what, the virgin birth is, uh, number one, obviously, you know, that stuff doesn't happen, i.e. miracle, okay? But number two, the, the, the way to make it where you don't feel like you're actually a sellout, the one where you're like, I'm not going to advertise that I'm like super liberal, is I'll come over here and what I'll say is, you know, it's not that I don't believe God could do it, I just don't believe it's very necessary at all. I just don't think it's necessary, which is a stupid theological comment, all right? It's a stu- it's certainly it's important. Okay, I'll give you 10 reasons. Let me give you two real quick. Number one, it's obviously a fulfillment of prophecy. God clearly says, you know what, I'm going to do this through a virgin. Now, they didn't really realize that was a literal meaning of it, but he obviously says that, all right? Check out all the Old Testament prophecies. Secondly, he had to come to be a virgin. You know why? Because he's not going to be a son of what the Bible calls a son of Adam. You understand what I'm saying? All right, put on your big boy pants for just a second about son of Adam, okay? Luke 1 is in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. So Genesis 1 and 2, everything goes awesome for like two pages, okay? For two pages, everything's awesome. And then in Genesis 3, you have what's called the fall of man, the fall of man. Our forefathers, our parents way back there, Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel. And what the scripture then teaches, it says that's called original sin, original sin, And it says, ever since then, anybody who has been born of man and woman, anybody who's been born, all of us, we come with what the Bible talks about as a sin nature. A sin nature is we naturally rebel against God. We naturally try to trust the, not the creator, but the the creation. That's why we always try to look for fulfillment and satisfaction in this boyfriend or this job or this toy or whatever. That's our natural bent, all right? Romans says that's like sons of Adam. We are all sons of Adam. Jesus was not a son of Adam, okay? The Bible actually says the first Adam brought a curse. The second Adam took the curse that we deserved to himself. The first Adam, he took the fruit from the tree. The second Adam, Jesus, he climbed up on a tree and took the curse on himself. And so when you look at it, super important, this, the whole, you're like, oh, I don't understand. I don't understand. And here's, let me give you one thing. Here's what, here's what you'll hear probably one or two of them saying. We're like, well, the... Uh, the word for virgin there, because what, what the gospel writers are doing is they're reaching back and what the Old Testament writers, that word virgin can actually mean young woman. And actually it can, it can, okay? Every once in a while it's used for young women. But do you actually think Mary is asking, okay, you're gonna have a baby. How can this be since I'm a young woman? Okay, that's, that's not what she's asking. How can I be? It's like, okay, I know how this works. It, you can have a baby as a young woman. She's asking, how can this be since I'm a virgin? All right, so tour got over uh, on, on that part. So here's what we want to do. What am I supposed to do with uh, the struggle that I am? Because Mary's, again, good doubt is I don't see how this is going to work. And here's verse 37. You need to underline this, highlight this, circle this, do something with this. This is like one of the most faith-inducing. This has helped me so much in the last couple of weeks, but particularly the last couple of years, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, just fill in your own blank on nothing. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. You're like, I'm not sure how that will work. Well, going back to that, that man who gave the boy, it's like, heal my son. He's the same guy that's like, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, I want to believe, help my unbelief. So how do we do that? What is it in your life right now that you're like, it's impossible. It's impossible for this to ever change. You've got doubts. You've got, I'm not sure how this is. I'm really struggling believing God right now for all of this. So here's what I'm going to do the rest of the time. 
Uh, I'm going to give you, uh, let me show you in 38 and 39, what I would just call, if the first part is the struggle to believe, the struggle of faith, how am I going to believe God when this stuff is happening? Then this is, okay, how do I get strength to actually believe? How do I go through this right now until God actually answers this? How does this happen? Let me read 38 and 39 first, and and then I'll come back, take a few things out of here. Mary said, remember, this is all the stuff with Mary. Here's the end of this, almost the end of the story. But Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Now listen, she's not totally all, she's not, there's no indication she's fired up about anything yet. She gets there, but at this point, she's almost, it's almost Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but your will be done. It is lordship, it is God, you are the boss, but there's tremendous emotion here. And so what she says is, behold, I am a servant of the Lord, which is an awesome posture to have. It means I'm servant, it's the feminine word for doulos. It's like, God, I am on my knees, you are worth more, I'm the servant, the world does not revolve around me, it revolves around you, I submit to you, this is really surrender. But she says, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, what you just said, it's freaking me out. I'm scared. If it ends up me being destitute on the street with all these people calling my son illegitimate, let it be according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town named Judah. Number one. It's like, how am I going to get strength? First thing is this, is you're going to have to figure out a way to give it, and you, it is your definition, okay? Give it, give it to God. What is it? What is the one thing that you think that, you know what, I can't control this, I can't make this happen? You know, every once in a while what happens to you, and this has happened to me, I'm a control freak by nature, and every once in a while, In life, God has pulled back the curtain on the illusion of control. If you're a control person and a type A, you feel like if you work hard enough, strategize hard enough, and if need be, pray hard enough, then it will happen. Every once in a while, God will pull back that curtain. It might be health, it might be family, it might be something, and you can try all you want to and you cannot make it change. And at first you are so frustrated by it. But if you'll eventually get to where Mary is when you're like, God, I'm your servant. That's all I am. That's all I am. I'm your servant. Let it be. Let it be according to your word. Now I'm going to tell you right now, let me just, here's a little experience. It's not easy and it's not a one-time thing. This is like a, have you ever watched WWE? Man, that thing Really? Nobody's going to admit it. There's like six billion people that watch WWE. Nobody's admitting it. I'm just saying this. All right, just go on. There's like a wrestling match that goes on. They go on. They go on. Every once in a while, you're like, I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out. And they'll spring forth and they'll wrestle again. That's what it's like to really trust God with a particular area. I mean, some of it's small beans. Some of it's small beans. I'll give you an example. Some of you all have made a, some of you all trusted Christ in the last year and you won't even you can't even trust him for getting in a tank. Seriously, okay? Well, I don't want to get my hair wet. And what will people think? It's just trusting God. I mean, that's like a, that's tiny little, that's tiny little faith. Some of it's big. Some of it's bigger though. Some of it is, again, I, I 
done this a long time. So some of you that are married, you literally, um, you're already separated. You're like, man, to blank with that, I'm not even trying anymore because it's impossible. It cannot change. That's really what the January series is about is about, you know, when you look in the Bible, when you look in the Bible, what mountains are in the Bible, mountains in the Bible are things that they're symbolic. When he says, you know what, if you have enough faith to look at the mountains and say, if you have enough faith, you can say that mountain, go from here to go to there. It's not talking about you're going to go up to Pisgah and move the mountain. That's not what he's saying. It's symbolic of things that have been there a long time. They seem unchangeable. You've tried, you're frustrated on it. You know, like I prayed, like I had a lady out there is like, you know what, I've been praying for my husband for 10 years. What do I do? What do I do? It's like, you keep praying. You keep praying. It says, if you have enough faith, that mountain will move. It's not that it's, again, it's not Pisgah, okay? What it is is an immovable circumstance, something that you've thrown the white flag up on. I say that to say nothing is impossible with God. Listen, if the tomb is empty, nothing is impossible with God. And in your mind, what I want you to think about is that one thing, highlight that verse and say, you know what, I'm giving this to you. It's not impossible. You can give the job, you can restore the marriage, you can redeem the friend, you can return the prodigal, you can do that. But to do that, you're really gonna just have to give it because that's gonna be a wrestling match all the time. Next thing you have to do is this, is you're gonna have to give, worship is, a, worship is like oxygen for you when you're struggling in your faith. You're like, where is that in there? Well, don't, don't, it should be on the same page, but here, here's what happens. She gets up, she goes to see Aunt Elizabeth, and then right after, and we'll get to her in a second, right after that, she writes what is called Mary's Magnificat. Some of your Bibles, it says right up there, it says Magnificat or Mary's song. Mary, Mary goes and writes a worship song about how awesome God is and how awesome God has been to her. She says, she says stuff like, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That is the Christian life. It's not some poor me. It's like, God is awesome, and I'm so glad I'm his daughter. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now on all generations they will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And by the way, again, when she says, I'm a servant, some of you immediately recoil at that, and you're like, man, that's, she got poor self-esteem, all right? She got bad self-esteem. We need to get her like power positive thinking book. We need to get over to Barnes and Noble, get her a self-help book. We need to do something like that. It's not it at all. She just understands her perspective when she sees how big God is. And here's what'll happen is if you're just a religious person who comes to church periodically, just you come, hey, I'm glad you're here. Even professing Christians only are in church like 1.6 times a month compared to 3.2 times a month just 20 years ago. And so we're talking about worship. It's like we got like 29 minutes of music and like 40 minutes of preaching and then baptisms and all this stuff. It's like we want to make everything count. But worship really happens not with religion. Religion is all about, look what I do. How, how are you doing? Well, I'm trying hard. That's religion. You're not amazed when you're religion. But if you understand the gospel and what God has done for you, it's like when you... St- My dad took us on a couple of trips before he passed away. And one of those trips that we went out as a kid is we went out west. Out west for us was Arizona, but the one that I remember as a kid, got the cowboy hats, the little squirrel tails, all that kind of stuff, he took us to the Grand Canyon. And even as like a 10-year-old, it's like, oh, you do not feel really big when you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're like, man, I am perfectly small. Nobody goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's like, man, 
I'm big stuff. I got a PhD in preaching. Or I'm pretty awesome, man. I'm the CEO, VP, senior executive, whatever. Nobody does that. The same way when you and I actually, that's what worship is. Worship is you are worth more. I am worth less, you are worth more. It's the maximization of God and the minimization of self. It's what John the Baptist said when everybody came to him. It's like, hey, a lot more people are following Jesus than you. He said, you know what? Awesome. I must decrease. He must increase. That's like one of the best, people don't look that, that's a worship, that's a worship verse. Maximization of God, minimization of myself. And um, let me give this last one. This one, a lot of people overlook this one. When you're really struggling with something, you, you tend to do what? You just isolate yourself. You see what she did in like that last couple of verses? It says she got up with haste and she went. Where'd she go? She went to other believers' house. She went to Aunt Elizabeth. And if you look, the only difference between the time that she's like, oh, be it under your will, and the time she's writing this worship song is she spent some time with her aunt who loved God, and her aunt, a believer, spoke into her life. He says, Mary, you're blessed among women. That baby, he is going to be the biggest blessing in, in the entire world. And you go from Mary who's scared and I'm going to believe and I'm going to try to Mary writing the Magnificat. And the only difference was is in a difficult situation, she gets around the right people and gets the right perspective and got some people who spoke some truth into her. Why do you think we're always telling you to get into a connect group? Seriously, let's just talk about it for a second. Why do you think we're telling you to get into a connect group all the time? Why do we tell you to get into a D group all the time? Is it because we want a program to flourish? No. It's because when the wheels fall off in your life, who is going to be there? Your drinking buddies? They're not. Man, the drinking buddies are gone because you can't even afford the drink anymore, okay? Who's going to be there? Who's going to be there to not just speak life into you, not just to pull you back from the edge? That's the way we usually think about it, pull your life back from the edge. You know what it is a lot? It's not just pulling your life back. It's pushing you forward into what God has for you. That's what, that's what Elizabeth did. Do you understand, Mary? God picked you out of his grace to be the biggest blessing and give the biggest blessing. And so you got, you got anybody that's going to just speak into you. Here's how, I mean, just think about who you could say today. Imagine going up to your Connect Group teacher. Man, here's how I see God working in you. God's impacting my life through you. I'm learning how to disciple my kids for you. Maybe you got a friend, they're going through a hard time. You imagine the encouragement when you just text him or her and say, hey, I prayed for you today. I prayed for your son. I prayed for your health. I prayed for your surgery. I prayed for your marriage. I prayed for the struggle you're having with this habit. Or how about this? Just speak some encouragement and truth into somebody at your house. Hey, wives, any wife in here? would just say, man, I am so tired of the encouragement that my husband gives me. All it is is day after day after day, what an awesome wife you are, and I love you so much, and God's blessed. Anybody, any wife, and say, like, I'm so sick of that. Anybody? Nobody at all. Nobody. And husbands, by the way, same thing. I've never heard a husband come into my office and go, you know what? I tell you what, I want to leave my wife, but, man, it's, uh, it's amazing. She just tells me how awesome I am all the time. That has never, ever, ever happened. You're like, well, what? they won't even notice. They'll notice. They will. Do you notice people? I can tell you right now, the last 10 texts I've got that have been encouraging. 
I can tell you about the pastor who sent me a text from Texas the other day. He's like, I've been listening to your podcast. He said some nice things. I was like, man, I'm taking a snapshot of that. That's awesome because I thought that last sermon stunk on ice. So it was like, awesome. They'll know it. Remember John Wooden, the UCLA coach? Everybody thinks Dean Smith's the one that taught his players how to point at somebody when they gave him an assist. It wasn't. It was John Wooden. John Wooden's the one that says, listen, if you make a layup or you make a jump shot, somebody gave you the assist, somebody passed the ball to you, when you make the layup, when you make the shot, make sure you look at them and kind of point at them, acknowledging, you know what, I made the shot, I got the layup because of you. And one of the guys is like, hey, coach, what if they're not looking? And he just, very, it's like, they'll watch, they'll be looking, they'll be looking. Why? Because when you get isolated, when you get out there by yourself, you're like what the lions do on the National Geographic. What do they do? They pick off, they pick off the person that got away from the herd. That's why we like talking about starting points. Some people are like, well, I don't want to go to starting point. Starting point is just how do you get connected? How do you get with the people of God? So here's the way we're going to end. Um, it's going to be a little different. Um, most of us in here, if you think hard enough and if you humble yourself enough, there's at least something that you feel like, man, that's impossible. Unless God intervenes, that is impossible. It might be a person. It might be a situation. It might be a, a number of health. It might be a friend, whatever. There's a song. Actually, the new song for me is I Raise a Hallelujah, to be honest. The one thing that I'm holding on to is, I told you, that Matthew 17, Psalm 27, 13, but sometimes a song gets in your heart and it's like, that's helping my faith, that's helping my faith. And it says, I raise a hallelujah in the midst of the mystery. I'm like, man, I'm holding on to that. I don't understand it, but I'm holding on to that. Hallelujah just means praise the Lord. So I'm praising the Lord knowing there's gonna be a day when I see his goodness. So the old song that it used to be is called This We Know. Right, we sung it a bunch. So if, even if it's the first time here, it's real easy. We're not going to sing the whole thing, but we're going to sing the chorus and the bridge. Right. So here's the way I want to do it. Actually, here's, here's the way this, it starts off. It says, this we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you ever made. Jesus, you are unfailing. And then the bridge is like, your ways are higher, your ways are higher, and et cetera. So what I want you to do is this. Okay, we normally end, and I'm like, hey, I'd love to meet you in the lobby. Love to talk with you and all this kind of stuff. So I, I want to say that on the front end. I'd love to meet you in the lobby if, this, if I've not met you before. If you're first time here, we've got a gift for you out there. Please come by there. But I want the last thing that you hear today. It's not my voice inviting you to come get a cookie, okay? My, what I want you to hear, I want you to he, you hear you expressing faith back to God, saying, this we know, this I know. I am by faith saying there's going to be a day when I see the victory, okay? I don't see it now, but there's a day when I'm going to see the victory come. There's a day when I'm going to see my enemy running out my door, and he's going to run away from my family. He's going to run away from my marriage. He's going to run away from my habits that are destroying me. He is going to run. And so right now, I'm claiming the promises, knowing that one day this is going to be reality. That's called walking by faith. So here's the way we're going to do it. Um, some of you are going to go, we can't do that. We're not Pentecostal. We can't do that. You can, okay? So I'm going to ask you in a second. I'm going to ask you to stand. Don't stand yet, but here's what I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to actually, if you have something that you're like, you know, I've written impossible over that, and I'm just going to write over that whole thing. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. I'm going to worship him like I believe that. I'm going to be in community like I need that, and I'm going to give it to him because I know I should. And what you're doing is I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, uh, just as a sign of faith, because that's what a lot of times you see. You see Jesus asking a little something, not because he needs it, 
because it expresses our faith, whether it be give me the loaves and the fishes, whether it be when he's doing the miracle and heal that guy, he spit on the ground and made some mud. He didn't need the mud to heal the guy. It's just an expression. And so our expression today is going to be we're just going to put our hands up like this, which means either, hey, I'm worshiping, or you know what, God, I'm, my hand is empty. I got nothing. The illusion of control has been stripped away from me. I can't change it. But what you're doing is then you just either sing or pray the song, This We Know, and then you just make that your expression of faith, all right? So why don't you stand on your feet? We got the, uh, i tell you what, here we go. All right, so um, as they play this, Here's what we're going to do. I tell you what, I'm going to pray now, and then they're going to do the song, and that's the last thing you're going to hear, okay? Father, our prayer is that the next maybe 60, 90 seconds or so, that the song that we sing, the hands that are raised, you would look down from heaven, and you would hear your people crying out, saying, just like the man in Matthew 17, I do believe, I do believe, but help my unbelief. God, right now, I'm taking you at your word. I'm saying there's going to be a day. When I see my good friend saved, there's going to be a day when I see my husband get right with God. There's going to be a day when I see my prodigal return. There's going to be a day when the interviewer calls me up and offers me a job. There's going to be a day when the doctor calls and says, you know what, the doctor report is good. There's going to be a day. But right now, this we know, this I know. The victory is going to come. 